Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's International and National Security Law Practice Group, was recorded on Thursday, September 28, 2017, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federalist Society members. Welcome to the Practice Group's teleform conference call, as today we debate the need for the authorization for the use of military force. I'm Dean, Roy- Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded for use as a podcast in the future. We're very pleased to have two return guests to Teleforum today. We'll hear from Professor Stephen I. Vladek. He's a professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law in Texas. Uh, he'll be followed by Robert F. Turner. He's a professor at the General and Professor, General Faculty Distinguished Fellow and Associate Director at the Center for National Security Law at the University of Virginia, uh, right here in the Washington, D.C. area. We're going to get opening remarks from each of about seven to ten minutes or so, and then maybe a responsive round. But as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions, so please have those in mind for when we get to that portion of the program. With that, Professor Vladek, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you very much, Dean. Thanks to folks for taking the time from their days to to tune into this call today. Thanks to my my good and longtime friend, Bob Turner, both for having the idea for this teleforum um, and for for being a a, a worthy sparring partner. Um, I I thought I'd start by just sort of betraying my bottom line, um, which is that I do very much think that the time has long since passed for Congress to revisit, revise, and update what everyone calls the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, that was initially passed out of Congress on September 14, 2001, three days after the 9-11 attacks, that was signed into law by President Bush uh, the following Tuesday, September 18th. Uh, The AUMF has been on the books now for 16 years and 10 days, um, and it really has not been amended or updated or revised at all to account for the very different nature of the armed conflict that the United States finds it in today compared to where we were in those first fateful hours and days after September 11th. Um, And I thought to illustrate the problem, I'd start with a very recent case that has been sort of in the news and sort of not in the news. So as a lot of folks may know, about two weeks ago, um, an American citizen allegedly fighting on behalf of the Islamic State in Syria um, apparently surrendered himself to SDF, Syrian uh, Democratic Forces, of troops, um, SDF being the sort of the, the good guys in the fight against Assad, um, and the SDF in turn turned this American citizen um, over to U.S. authorities who uh, told several reporters from NBC News, from the Daily Beast, um, from CBS News, that the U.S. citizen who was not named was being held at an undisclosed location as an enemy combatant. Um, if folks remember their history, we've actually only held two other U.S. citizens in military detention as enemy combatants um, under the AUMF, at least in long-term military detention under the AUMF um, in its 17, in its 16 years on the books. Uh, the first, obviously, was Yasser Hamdi, who was captured or, uh, by the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan sometime in the fall of 2001 before he was turned over to U.S. forces 
first brought to Guantanamo and then eventually to Virginia, um, and Jose Padilla, um, who was arrested on a material witness warrant getting off a plane at O'Hare Airport in May of 2002, uh, one month later was sent also to military detention in South Carolina. Obviously, both Hamdi's and Padilla's cases wound their way to the Supreme Court, um, but the relevant fact here is Padilla was released from military detention in January 2006 when he was indicted on civilian criminal charges in Florida. That was the last moment at which we held a U.S. citizen in military detention under the AUMF. Um, the reason why I think this latest case is such an interesting excuse for revisiting this debate over the need for a new AUMF is if this U.S. citizen is able to bring a habeas petition challenging the legality of his detention, it's going to raise two pretty serious major questions about the AUMF that have not been answered by the courts. Um, and I want to sort of flag what those questions are and then flag why I think those answers are not necessarily obvious. Um, the first major question about the AUMF that would be raised in such a case is whether it applies to U.S. citizens arrested or captured in contexts other than the very specific facts that were before the Supreme Court in the Hamdi case. Um, as listeners may remember, Justice O'Connor's four-justice plurality opinion in the Hamdi case in June of 2004 upheld the military detention of a U.S. citizen under the AUMF but very specifically on the facts of that case where the U.S. citizen was captured in the context of active combat operations in an active military theater um, against a group that was directly responsible for the 9-11 attacks. Um, the court did not prejudge cases presenting different facts. It just did not reach them. And indeed, um, in 2014, Justice Breyer, in a statement respecting the denial of certiorari in a case called Hussein versus Obama, went out of his way to remind everyone that there's a whole lot of stuff that still remains unanswered, at least by the Supreme Court, about the AUMF um, as applied to both citizens and otherwise. The second major question raised by this latest case involving a U.S. citizen being held in Syria um, is whether the AUMF, the statute Congress passed um, three days after 9-11, covers a group like the Islamic State, which did not exist on 9-11, given that the AUMF is specifically about authorizing military force against those persons, nations, or organizations that committed the 9-11 attacks or that harbored such uh, persons or organizations. Um, it's hard to see the argument that ISIS was such a group unless you accept the government's claim that ISIS is simply a derivative of al-Qaeda, um, that it's a splinter group, much as if Germany had splintered at the end of World War II. I think that's a plausible argument. Um, it's not clear to me that a court would necessarily accept that, especially in the context of the detention of a U.S. citizen. Um, let me sort of t take a step back from this case. The AUMF has been used by now three administrations over the 16 years it has been on the books to justify 37 different military operations and not just standoff attacks in at least 14 different countries. Um, that's a remarkable list, given that at the time the AUMF was enacted, um, the focus was entirely on Afghanistan and the AFPAC tribal region, um, and that the groups that we were so uh, uh, sort of sharply focused on were al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, the AUMF says nothing 
about associated forces and whether it applies to groups that did not attack us on 9-11 but are affiliated with those who did. And the historical precedent has been that we've authorized force against them separately. So during World War II, yes, the United States declared war against Germany and Japan, but we also declared war against Romania and Bulgaria and various other countries that were puppets of the Axis powers because we did not necessarily believe that they were subsumed within the declaration of war against Germany. That doesn't necessarily map on perfectly to the AUMF, but it does raise this question of whether we should be concerned that any president of any party could point to a group, assert that they are an associated force of al-Qaeda, and use that as justification for initiating offensive military action against them. Um, so let me just turn briefly to some of the proposals that are out there. Um, this is not a new conversation, as Bob can surely attest. We've been having this fight now for the better part of four or five years. Congress has been considering this matter for almost as long. Um, in the last administration, President Obama proposed draft legislation. Uh, there have been, by some counts, over three dozen different bills that would modify the AUMF, amend it in some regard, tweak it in some regard, replace it with a more specific statute that's focused more on exactly who we're fighting today. Um, and let me just commend what to me are three of the salutary features of these proposals before yielding the floor to my, my good friend, Bob Turner. Um, to me, the first salutary feature of these proposals um, is requiring Congress to actually adopt a definition of the criteria for associated forces. It's easy enough for us all to accept that Al-Qaeda is the group that's most directly responsible for the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and for the violence that followed. I think it would be a lot better from the perspective of uh, democratic representation and participation for Congress to say, and here are the other groups we mean, to either list them by name or, as many of the proposals do, um, to provide substantive criteria that the executive branch is supposed to use in identifying which groups count and a reporting requirement that whenever the executive branch determines that a new group is now covered as an associated force, it has to report that to Congress. Um, I think that would be a really positive step forward. Um, second of the three salutary features um, is the sunset. Um, so most of the proposals include at least some sunset ranging from two to five years, not because the idea is that in two to five years we will have won the conflict with al-Qaeda and its associates, but on the view that just as we are here today, 16 years after the AUMF was enacted, we should require Congress to have to revisit this issue on a more regular basis, given how quickly and rapidly the conflict appears to be changing. Um, this is not meant as a sort of invitation to those who are fighting to just hold on for two more years. I think it's very hard to imagine a scenario where Congress would not simply reenact some kind of force authorization but requiring a sunset puts the onus on Congress to act versus allowing inertia to take over, which is what's gotten us here over the last 16 years. Third, and perhaps most importantly, um, I think the actual best argument from the government's perspective for why it's a good idea for Congress to consider a new AUMF is because the longer that we go under the aegis of this increasingly outdated statute, I think the more pressure that's going to put on the courts 
to actually read into the AUMF limitations that very well may not be there. Um, so, for example, there's a major appeal pending in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit right now about whether, in some respects, the war against the Taliban, at least, has wound down in a sufficient manner to no, to no longer justify the continuing detention of Taliban, if not al-Qaeda, detainees at Guantanamo. Um, and I think that even if we're not there yet, if we get another 5, 10, 15 years with the two 2001 AUMF still being the only thing Congress has said about who we're actually fighting in the conflict that was, you know, ramped up with the attacks of September 11th. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on the courts to, you know, push back and to make sure that this doesn't become an open-ended blank check in perpetuity. Um, I, I, I'm a bit ambivalent on the ultimate question of whether the AUMF today applies to ISIS. I think it's a close call. What I hope I leave all of our listeners with is there are lots of good reasons why Congress should step back in and clarify what the law is going forward. Um, and at least to my regard, um, reasons that outweigh the counter-arguments, uh, which I gather we will now be hearing from my good friend Bob Turner. Uh, thank you, Steve. Steve's a dear friend, uh, one of the finest debaters I've encountered. He was he won the moot court competition as the best orator at Yale Law School, which tells us something. And thanks to Dean also for scheduling this. Uh, first of all, George W. Bush did not need an AUMF to respond to the 911 attacks. Con the Constitution has always been interpreted to allow the president to respond to foreign attacks. Indeed, on 17 August uh, 1789, James Madison moved to change the power to be given to Congress in the Constitution from the power to make war to the power to declare war, and specifically noted this would leave the president the power to respond to sudden attacks. Even Section 2C2 of the War Powers Resolution recognizes that the president has independent constitutional power to respond to what they call, quote, a national emergency created by an attack upon the United States, its territories or possessions, or its armed forces. Now, briefly, the separation of powers in the foreign affairs area the key language to that is Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, which gives, con gives the president the executive power. The term executive power was understood by the framers uh, who had read Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone, all of whom considered foreign affairs to be part of the executive power. Uh, and thus, they, they, you know, they specifically discussed this uh, in, a, in an April uh, 1790 memo to George Washington, uh, Secretary of Foreign Affairs Tom Jefferson noted that the Constitution had given the executive power to the president, and he said the uh, conduct of of, uh, of relations with foreign nations was, quote, executive altogether. Uh, and that's where that power comes from, the power of Congress to declare war, like the power of the Senate to negate uh, to, to negative uh, diplomatic appointments and treaties and so forth were considered exceptions to the general grant of executive power and were to be construed strictly. Uh, Madison, or, uh, Hamilton, in his first Pacificus essay, noted the executive power was vested in the president and the power of the legislature to declare war was an exception out of the, quote, executive power vested in the president. We should keep in mind the, the term declare war was a term of art from the law of nations. Uh, it was a, 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 a an act associated only with what they call perfect wars, all-out offensive wars. When one country decided to attack another country in a non-defensive setting, 
of placing all citizens of one country at war with all citizens of the other country, then a formal declaration of war was considered appropriate. That type of war was outlawed first in the uh, uh, 1929 Kellogg-Briand Treaty and then again more clearly in the 1945 UN Charter through Article 2.4. As Hugo Grotius often argued to be the father of modern international law explained in 1620, no declaration is required when one is repelling an invasion or seeking to punish the author of some crime. Uh, formal declarations of war were associated with aggressive war, such as when one state wanted to take over another state or wanted a portion of its land or something like that. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is a non-governmental organization, ISIS, is attacking countries, uh, its neighboring countries, but also uh, uh, sponsoring attacks against our NATO allies, attacks in this country. Uh, and we are acting in self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, defending ourselves and defending our allies. Indeed, when the Charter was ratified and the UN Participation uh, Act was passed in 1945, the unanimous reports of the Senate Foreign Relations and House Foreign Affairs Committees noted that uh, the presidential use of U.S. forces to carry out operations under the UN Charter would not infringe upon the power to declare war. As Tom Connolly, the Foreign Relations Committee chairman, put it, these forces are created to keep the peace, not for war. No country has clearly declared war since World War II. Today, the congressional power to declare war is as much an anachronism as the power given in the same sentence to grant letters of mark and reprisal, which used to authorize ship private commercial ship owners to take their ships out in the high seas and seize the, the ships of a country with which we were in conflict, either at war or had some other dispute. Letters of mark and reprisal were outlawed by the Declaration of Paris in 1856. No country has issued one since then. Even were this not true, a declaration of war against ISIS would be most inappropriate. Under international law, declarations of war were between or among sovereign states, not non-governmental organizations. Indeed, it's difficult to think of a non-military act the United States might take that would bring more, ha more happiness to ISIS, as by implication, we would be recognizing their claim to be a sovereign state. And since under international law, international recognition is one of the elements to establish that an entity is a sovereign state, we would be strengthening their claim that ISIS is a foreign state. Even if the president needed an AUMF for ISIS, the 2001 AUMF clearly satisfies that need. Congress declared in 2001 that the president was authorized to use force as he determines against those organization, those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided in the terrorist attacks. Uh, so the authority to determine which groups could be lawfully targeted was vested in the president. Obviously, if the president decided to say the Democratic Party was a terrorist group and wanted to attack them, we would not tolerate that. But ISIS was originally set up as a splinter group of al-Qaeda. It was called al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, and and it, in both Al Qaeda and I, and uh, and Al Qaeda in Iraq acknowledge their relationship, and it's, un, it's it's unclear to me by what logic we would say that simply by changing its name and becoming more brutal, ISIS can immunize itself from attack. Steve says it's plausible, 
that ISIS is a, a, a splinter group of al-Qaeda. He actually used those words. In reality, the United Nations Security Council has repeatedly, for example, in resolutions 2170 in 2014 and 2253 in 2015, unanimously declared that ISIS is, and I quote, a splinter group of al-Qaeda. The president has a pretty strong case to say that, al that, uh, that ISIS is connected with al-Qaeda. And again, even if this not true, even if there were no connection between ISIS and other terrorist groups, ISIS has been responsible for a number of armed attacks against American citizens in this country and abroad, uh, in places like San Bernardino and Orlando, that would justify defensive actions. They've also launched major attacks against our NATO allies. If you would like to ask during Q&A, I will explain where the president gets the power to use the armed forces to uphold treaty commitments. And that was the unanimous view of both chambers, uh, their foreign relations committees, back in 1945. So I'm persuaded no AUMF is constitutionally necessary for ISIS. But a strong case might be made that on prudential grounds, a new congressional joint resolution declaring to the world that the United States was united in a bipartisan matter to destroy ISIS or neutralize its, its, its ability to do harm to others would be very useful. Not constitutionally necessary, but politically useful. But that would require bipartisan cooperation in Congress of a kind we, don't, we have not witnessed very often. We saw it this morning when Steve Scalise came back from his injuries. But in general, the two parties seem to hate each other pretty much as much as they hate ISIS. And a congressional debate that signaled weakness, signaled the country was divided, that led to all sorts of efforts to restrict the president's conduct of the war, uh, could totally undermine our effort, could drive away allies, and could embolden our enemies. Uh, indeed, one can make a strong case that uh, the, the primary reason we were attacked on 9-1-1 was because Osama bin Laden believed that our withdrawal from Vietnam, from Beirut in 1983, and from Somalia in 1993 showed we could not accept casualties. Indeed, he said that to an American reporter in 1998. We could ask about that in Q&A. If Congress decides to pass a new AUMF, it should be clean with no conditions of any kind. Congress has declared war 11 times in five wars. Not once did it place any conditions on how the president fought the war. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said in cases like Ex parte Milligan in 1866 and Hamdan v. Rumsfeld in 2006, quote, Congress cannot direct the conduct of campaigns. During World War II, when German panzer units moved into North Africa, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did not return to Congress seeking more authority. He sent General Patton in to kick Rommel's butt, and no one in Congress objected. You fight the enemy where you find him. One of the principles of state responsibility under international law is a duty to prevent your territory from being used to harm other states. That's the basis of our intervention in, uh, uh, in Syria without the consent of their government. Uh, one also might make a case that the president has some power under the, uh, 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 the, AUM, under the uh, Iraq AUMF because uh, you know, some of our operations are taking there and protecting Iraq from ISIS attacks. Uh, the sunset provision is absolutely horrible. It's telling our enemies they're only authorized to fight us for three years or one year or three weeks or whatever Congress might decide. Yes, Congress could pass another statute, uh, but there's no reason to believe it will, especially after bodies start coming home in body bags. 
uh, the the Tim Kaine statute prohibited U.S. ground forces except to protect Americans. I don't know if we need ground forces in this war or not, but I surely know we don't need to assure the enemy that we can't do that. It's absolutely absurd. You don't fight a war with your hand tied behind your back. We want the enemy to think we're just looking for a place to drop nukes because they might give up if they understand that we're serious about this war. And sunset provisions, uh, he would he would pro- require transparency in military operations, literally telling the world who we're going to attack and when. It is absolutely absurd. Ron Paul's amendment, he wants to repeal both AUMFs six months from the date of passage of his amendment and then allow Congress to do something if they want to. Again, what signal are you sending to your allies? What signal are you sending to the young men and women who are over there bravely fighting for us that Congress is cutting off their legal authority? Uh, What signal are you sending to allies and to the enemy? Uh, Congress lacks the courage to take a stand on this. Obama asked them for a new AUMF, and that's been years, and they've done nothing. Uh, So, again, bottom line is... uh, the president does not need a new AUMF to fight. If Congress would behave itself and come together with a united country, it would be wonderful to have a new AUMF, but it should not include details of how to fight the war. That would be unconstitutional. Well, gentlemen, I think we've set the stage pretty well here. Let me, uh, before I give Professor Vladek a chance to respond, I'm going to open the floor to questions so people can queue up. In a moment, we'll all hear an announcement that will say the floor mode is on. After you hear that announcement, if you have a question for either or even both of our guests, push the star button and then the pound button on your telephone. Once again, if you have a question, push the star button, then the pound button on your telephone. We'll get to your questions momentarily. A quick note about upcoming uh, Teleform conference calls tomorrow at noon Eastern time at this same number. We will have a special CLE uh, ethics Teleform conference call tomorrow at noon. Of course, today we're talking about the AUMF. Um, I, I do want to get to audience questions, Professor Vladek, but I do want to give you uh, a, a minute or two uh, to respond, and I will give Professor Turner as much time as you take now, but uh, let's try and keep it short if we can so we can get to the audience. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, thank you, Bob. I've got four very brief points, which I hopefully think won't take much more than, than two minutes. Um, first, let me say I, I agree completely with Bob that we did not need an AUMF in those first fateful hours, days, and weeks after 9-11, um, I think almost everyone agrees that the president has inherent defensive war powers under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution and Article 51 of the U.N. Charter, um, and that he did not need to wait around for Congress to respond to the attacks on September 11th. Hopefully, though, we also all agree that at some point between the morning of September 11th and today, um, the conflict with al-Qaeda transitioned from one of pure self-defense to one in which there was some degree of offensive military operations as well. And it's my view, at least, that that's the point at which some kind of congressional buy-in was necessary. You know, the harder question is whether the AUMF was sufficient. Uh, Point number two, um, Bob thinks any new statute, which I heard him to agree would be a good development as a policy matter, ought to be bipartisan. Well, frankly, most of them have been. And what, to my mind, is the most compelling of the current proposals, 
um, Senate Joint Resolution Number 43 um, has bipartisan co-sponsors and Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona and Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia. Um, Bob said that the Kaine proposal would include a ground truth limitation. Actually, the current bill doesn't. Um, and so I would really encourage folks who are interested to go check out SJ Res 43 um, and see if they have still the same objections that Bob offered. Um, number three, Bob says that I'm arguing for transparency in military operations. That's just not fair. I mean, I don't think I said anything about advertising to our targets and enemies when and where we are going to strike them. Transparency in military operations to me is a little different from transparency about which groups we are engaged in military operations against without regard to the details of the specific operations. It seems an alarming proposition to me that the government has a right to keep from the American people and from everyone on Congress except the Armed Services Committees, those groups who are actually using offensive military force against, I don't know how we reconcile that with fairly basic principles about democratic accountability. Um, finally, Bob notes quite correctly that none of the declarations of war ever passed in American history included substantive limitations. That is, however, not an accurate statement about AUMFs. Um, in their fantastic article on the history of the Commander-in-Chief Clause, Marty Lederman and now Judge David Barron identify a handful of examples where prior AOMS have included either geographic constraints or temporal restraints, and we did not have this same kind of debate. Those were more limited statutes, um, but in, if anything, to me, that proves the point that the AUMF from 2001 has become so grand and capacious that it can be used by this president or his successors for almost anything that they can plausibly tie to international terrorism. Um, everyone agrees right, that ISIS is a threat to the United States, that it is engaged in acts of international terrorism, that it is a really bad group of folks. I am not against an AUMF for ISIS. But whatever the relationship is between ISIS and al-Qaeda, ISIS is not the group that attacked us on 9-11. Um, and so long as that's true, and so long as we're trying to be faithful to the text of the original AUMF, which says that the purpose of the bill is to respond to those who attacked us on 9-11, I think it's really at least a good policy idea for Congress to revisit this matter. And even if you don't think that's true about, the, about, the, about ISIS, imagine tomorrow that President Trump goes and names the Muslim Brotherhood an associated force under the AUMF. Um, at that point, I think we would really understand exactly how problematic it is that 16 years in, the AUMF is still the same 60 words that Congress enacted three days after 9-11. Thank you very much. Professor Turner, a quick response? Yeah, thanks. Uh, first, just to clarify something, I did not accuse, Steve misunderstood me, I did not accuse him of calling for transparency. This was in uh, Senator Keynes, the bill he introduced year after year. And the way he described it in the bill, it sounded to me like we had to announce in advance who our targets were going to be and, and, and so forth. But uh, at any rate, I, I certainly didn't mean to be putting that into uh, Steve's uh, thing. Now, let me go back to the thing Steve, uh, Steve has said. He said that, that uh, we held Americans uh, I think he said we held two American citizens uh, under the, this AUMF. The reality is the Supreme Court upheld holding Americans uh, in, det in military detention in the case of Inray Quirin uh, during the Civil War. And we also, the thing people miss, the United States military holds American citizens in military detention, tens of thousands of them every single day. 
These are our own soldiers who violate the, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, are tried by military tribunals called courts martial, and are sent to military detention facilities to carry to uh, to fulfill their sentences. This is not something uh, shocking. But let, let me go. Let's go ahead and get on to questions. Okay, very good. If you have a question in the audience, push the star button, then the pound button on your telephone. We've got quite a bit of time left. We've got two questions to uh, get us started, so let's take our first call. Um, I just wanted a question to, for uh, Professor Turner. Um, my name is Devin Watkins. Um, you, what you talked about about general war and a declaration of war is exactly right, but lesser included within the declaration of war power is the power to, to declare a limited war. This was used uh, by John Adams in the Quasi War with France, Thomas Jefferson in the First Barbary War in Tripoli, um, and um, a variety of times. Also, we authorized use of military force against slave traders in 1819. Um, these kind of limited actions and slave traders, there was no nation at all that was involved here. And so I'm wondering how you reconcile these historical acts of uh, not a declaration of war, not a general war, but a limited war authorized by Congress. Um, how you reconcile that with your arguments? I think it's an excellent question, and I think you're exactly right. Congress has, on occasion, uh, authorized force uh, short of war, if you will. And uh, uh, whether that is part of the power to declare war or whether that is, uh, uh, you know, a, a non-essential prudential. Uh, uh, you know, a policy one could debate. Uh, in Bass versus Tingey and Talbot versus Seaman in the early 19th century, the Supreme Court uh, acknowledged that Congress could declare war, could authorize hostilities without formally declaring war. But you mentioned Jefferson's example of Tripoli, and that was one of the first uses of force abroad by this country, and it is horribly misunderstood. I actually went to the Library of Congress and found Jefferson's handwritten notes. And Jefferson's first issue in his first cabinet meeting on March 15, 1801, was shall the squadron now at Norfolk be sent to the, to the Med, and if so, what should be their orders? And his, his cabinet made a decision to send two-thirds of the new American Navy halfway around the known world with instructions that if upon arriving at, at Gibraltar, they found that war had been declared against us, which was rumored to be planned by the Bay of Tripoli, they were to so dispose of the squadron as to chastise their insolence by seeking and burning their ships wherever they find them. Uh, this decision was made on uh, on March 15th. The squadron left on June 1. Uh, the president first notified Congress that he had sent the Navy over across the ocean to sink and burn enemy ships uh, on December 8th in his first State of the Union address. And we have the actual records from uh, uh, from the Barbary Wars, including the note from uh, from Commodore uh, uh, Dale to, uh, to Lieutenant Sterrett, telling him, you know, go to Malta and get water for the squadron. If going to you encounter a Tripolitan ship, you think you can you can best uh, go ahead and engage them, and then just cut away their rigging, toss over their cannons, and let them float ashore. If coming back, bring them as prize. And that was the only reason that they cut their rigging. Jefferson misrepresented that to Congress and pretended that uh, they didn't have authority to do anything other than that purely defensive action. Uh, he asked Congress for authority. They quickly gave it to him. No one condemned him 
for not having told Congress before he sent the squadron or for sent the squadron with orders to, to sink and burn. They thought that was presidential power. And the common response was, you don't declare war against pirates, even if they are states. Uh, but if Tom wants this, we'll go ahead and give it to him. So long after he had sent troops into war without telling Congress, he did get a statutory authorization for what he was doing. But uh, my own sense is he didn't need it. He didn't think he needed it. His cabinet didn't think he, they needed it. I've discussed this in, in several things I've written. If you're interested, email me and I'll give you a link. But if you if you read the whole background on this, Jefferson really uh, did not uh, give the full story to Congress when he reported in his first State of the Union message. Uh, Professor Vladek, uh, anything on this point? No, I'd love to hear more questions. Okay. If you have a question, push the star button, then the pound button on your phone. We've got just one question pending, then our lines are wide open. Uh, greetings. Um, as I understand from this discussion, the authorization for the use of military force is basically uh, an, an offensive authorization in that, in that defensively the president has uh, you know, an inherent power to, to deal with the situation. And if, if that's the case, um, I'm trying to figure out what the benefit of this 60-day delay before making that request is and whether or not that actually impacts uh, the, 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 the Congress's actual authority to be even involved in, in that, you know, quite frankly, if President, you know, Judy Goro could actually get us in to a situation that it wouldn't matter whether or not we had an authorization, we'd be into a conflict anyhow. And Just uh, to, to, to clarify, are you talking about the 60-day delay in the War Powers Resolution or something in the? Uh, I don't. I'm not aware of a 60-day delay in the AUMF. Well, well, as, as I understand, as I understand it, uh, like with the, the when we were bombing Libya, that was one of the things that they were using. No, you're, yeah, you're talking War Powers Resolution, not yeah. AUM, AUMF. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let me go back to, to uh, I didn't mean to, to usurp the microphone here. I'll, I'll stay quiet and see who, uh, uh, who Dean wants to, to call on to this. Well, I'm happy to have either one of you call if, if, if we've got the question out, if we have the gist of the, the question. Professor yeah, Bledick, yeah. See, if you want to go first, you want me to go first. Um, I, I, Bob, I suspect you and I actually agree, but I'm happy to go first if you don't mind. Uh, sure, sure, no problem at all. So, so the, I, I actually agree with the premise, with what I take to be the premise of the question, which is that the war powers resolution could be used by this or a future president as a justification for using military force at least for 60 days against a group not covered by the 2001 AUMF and that we therefore wouldn't have this fight. Um, to me, I actually think that's a bug in the war powers resolution, not a feature, but, but I agree that it's out there. I think the reality is that um, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, now the Trump administration, has not seen it necessary outside of the Libya context to go that route because they've been able to rely upon such capacious readings of the AUMF, which of course has no such 60-day clock. Um, and so they don't have to report to Congress periodically as required by Section 4 of the War Powers Resolution. They don't have to worry about the clock as required by Section 5. They don't have to worry about whether we're in a state of hostilities um, as defined by Section 2. Um, and so, you know, to me, the AUMF makes it too easy 
for the government to look at a new group, ISIS or otherwise, right? Let's, let's assume a group that's not at all connected to al-Qaeda. Um, the AUMF gives the government an opportunity to bring that group within the aegis of that statute and avoid the procedural and substantive requirements of the War Powers Resolution um, that would at least eventually, I think, create political blowback, if not legal blowback, in a context in which we went the War Powers Resolution route. So, Bob, I don't know. I don't know if that sounds like something you you, you basically agree with me on. I, I did, let me let me explain the background to the sixty. It's actually a sixty-two day uh, limit and a ninety-two day limit, yeah. and that's because the War Powers Resolution requires the president to uh, report within 48 hours, uh, ideally before, but at least within 48 hours of sending the troops. And then it provides that if uh, uh, Congress does not act within 60 days of when the report was submitted or was required to be submitted, which is to say 60 days plus two days, uh, the president must withdraw the troops. But if he certifies it's necessary to keep them there longer to, for their own protection, uh, he can keep them there up to 90 days or adding the 48 hours for the report if he didn't issue a report, 92 days. And the reason for that is uh, it often takes Congress a while to make a decision. If we are attacked, let's say the Soviets attack us, uh, or the, sorry, the Russians attack us, and they happen to hit us on the first day of Easter recess when members of Congress are flying all over the world, uh, is the president really supposed to say, well, uh, generals, go ahead and tell the guys they probably ought to start polishing their brass because we may be going to war. I'm calling Congress back. I'm guessing they can get here within five or six days. Uh, and remember, when the Constitution was written, it was it was weeks to get to, uh, to, to Washington. So the reason they give him time to act, this is not, and I got in, in fights with this when I, worked, when I worked in the State Department, and there were people who thought, oh, they've authorized us to do anything we want for, thir- for 90 days or 60 days. That's not what it is. Congress says you can't use force uh, without our approval except under very limited circumstances. But if you use force... You have to do these reports, so you have this this this, uh, this 60-day uh, time period. So the uh, there is no uh, uh, Eagleton. Tom Eagleton uh, refused to vote for the War Powers Resolution because he thought it was authorizing the president. But the War Powers Resolution clearly states that nothing in its text shall alter the powers of Congress or the president. It was not a grant of 60 days, do what you want. So I, I think that's just a misunderstanding of the text of the War Powers Resolution. And I think uh, if you had something that said the president cannot respond to an attack on the United States uh, until Congress can return and, uh, and convene and, and you know have committee meetings and hearings, and uh, then, you know, I, I don't know how many of you remember, I was in Vietnam during the final evacuation, and I was... I worked in the Senate at the time, and I remember when Jerry Ford came to the Senate and begged us to give him new author to the Congress to give us new authorization, so he would know what he could do to rescue the Americans in Vietnam and the Vietnamese would help us and third country nationals. And he asked for action within 10 days. Uh, it took them over three weeks, and then they had a conference committee and couldn't agree, so they adjourned for three days. And then the communists came into Saigon, and those of us who were there boogied out. Thank God Ford had the uh, the courage to say, okay, I'm going to pull him out. And then they came back, and the House turned down the conference report after it was all over. And the Washington Post had a very good editorial denouncing or pointing out that Congress cannot act with speed of dispatch. And that's why you have this uh, this uh, uh, 60-day uh, period. Uh, 
I've written two books on the War Powers Resolution. I think it's flagrantly unconstitutional, but that's a different call. Once again, if you have a question, now is the time to ask it. Our lines are wide open. Push the star button and then the pound button on your telephone. While we're waiting to see if somebody else rings in, uh, I'll ask a question or maybe give each of you the chance to ask uh, ask each other a question. But um, I guess this question is for Professor Vladek, and that's the combination of the original AUMF um, – I mean, I can, you can view it in, in combination with annual appropriations from Congress and a failure to object by Congress. They've never, as a body at least, as far as I know, objected to uh, the, the actions of the military. They might have raised questions about it, but there's never been a, a voiced objection as far as I know, not a resolution or anything else. And uh, sort of on the positive side of the ledger, they've continued to fund – uh, the Department of Defense uh, never withdrawn any funding on the basis of the president's gone too far here or there, as far as I know. Um, can, can you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, Dean, I think it's absolutely right that Congress has done nothing to disprove or disapprove, pardon me, um, the uses of force that I refer to, the 37 operations in 14 different countries. Um, I think it's just as fair to say Congress has done nothing to disapprove the use of force against ISIS, um, right? That, that if, the, if what we're looking for is some kind of, you know, interbranch conflict between Congress and the president, we don't have that here. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's just not fair to argue otherwise. Um, that said, I mean, I do think that it should not be hard for folks to understand how all of the inertia runs against Congress revising the AUMF. And so it would actually be very hard for a pure interbranch conflict to arise in this context, given how unlikely it is for Congress to actually aggressively push back when we're talking about funding ongoing military operations against a terrorist group like the Islamic State, when we're talking about you know, the use of military force by our dedicated men and women in uniform. Um, this is not, I think, a partisan issue. I think this is a question about institutional responsibility. And, you know, frankly, I think this, is, this should be an easier problem now that one party is in charge of both the executive branch and both houses of Congress, because you don't have the sort of, you know, partisan opposition dynamic that I think was partly responsible for the lack of any new statute during the Obama administration. Um, what, what my real concern is sort of going forward is the exact congressional acquiescence that your question um, uh, you know, described um, is to me a dangerous precedent for future uses of military force by future presidents. Um, and you know, the longer the AUMF stays on the books, one of two things is going to happen. Either it's going to be twisted in ever more problematic ways to cover ever remoter um, groups and, and threats from 9-11, or the courts are going to push back. And it strikes me that as between these two, those two polls, you know, the middle way is the better one, which is for Congress to step back into the fray and say, listen, we don't disapprove of what you're doing, but let's update it. Let's modernize it. I mean, let's, let's realize that we're going to be reaching a point soon where some of the men and women we're sending into harm's way under the AUMF weren't alive when the AUMF was enacted. Um, that's a staggering possibility and one that I think Congress really ought to be keeping in mind as it thinks about this legisl its legislative priorities. We do have a couple questioners on the line now. Uh, Professor Turner, can we take the next caller? Do you have something to add on that point? 
Um, I have a couple of these to add, but I can go fairly quickly. Uh, it's very clear Congress and the public support what we're doing against the, They want us to stop uh, ISIS. I, I just can't imagine that a, a real poll would show 20, even 20% support for um, for withdrawing and, and allowing them to continue to grow and, and kill people. Uh, the problem is the Tonkin Resolution uh, legacy. Uh, in in uh, August of 1964, Congress enacted an AUMF for Vietnam, very clearly authorizing the president to use force not only to defend South Vietnam, but also Cambodia, both protocol states of the CEDAW Treaty. The vote was 99.6%. Congress more than tripled the accompanying appropriation request, but when the war became unpopular, uh, they got their fingers burned. And since then, Congress almost never wants to enact something that they might be held accountable if things go wrong. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as the Supreme Court noted in the Verdugo case, uh, U.S. presidents have used force abroad over 200 times in our history without any congressional involvement. For force short of war and force against pirates and slave trade and so forth, presidents have often acted. Congress has enacted legislation at the request of presidents in these areas, but presidents have also acted on their own. Uh, and you know, a, a, a declaration of war was between sovereign states and, and creating an, a system of perfect war, all-out war, which nobody fights anymore. Uh, so that, that's why I think a declaration of war today and the power of Congress to declare war, assuming we obey international law, is an anachronism. We're, we're not going to engage in a war that would require a formal declaration of war. Well, let's check in again with the audience. Hi. Um, my question has to do with uh, how the uh, AUMF interfaces with the president's power to declare national emergencies. And I ask that because that was the power that was used uh, through Title X to recall me to active duty and send me over to the foreign country that I'm currently at. Uh, it was involuntary. I, I spent a lot of time looking at the laws, trying to figure out how I could get out of it, <laughs> and I couldn't, so here I am. But uh, if, if Rand Paul had been successful in uh, <clears throat> repealing the AUMF, what would have happened to people like me since the president, uh, there's still that declaration of national emergency that happened after September 11th, uh, and that's what enables the president to, to recall reservists like me uh, through Title X. Yeah, my guess is the AUMF, some would argue that the AUMF uh, can no longer... Uh, uh, be used to justify the operation, but the president could still keep you on active duty. But let, let me raise a fundamental issue here. The founding fathers viewed the power to declare war, like the Senate's role in confirming uh, uh, nominations and uh, uh, consenting to treaties, as negatives. They talked about it as negatives, and uh, the issue arose in 1789 when Madison introduced a bill to create the Department of State on who could remove the Secretary of State. And uh, some people said, well, it must be a life tenure appointment because there's no removal provision in the Constitution. Others said, well, the president is joined with the Senate in appointment, so the Senate would have to approve the, the removal. Madison prevailed with the argument that was accepted by both branches uh, by saying that the Senate was only joined in the decision to make the appointment and had no, obviously they could impeach, but beyond that, removal was a presidential prerogative. By that logic, 
since the power to declare war is essentially a congressional veto over a presidential decision that we needed to go to war against someone, it is not at all clear to me that Congress has the power to undo that any more than the Senate has on a few occasions tried to change the meaning of treaties after they had been ratified. And this in the, what was it, 16 Diamond Rings case, the Supreme Court said once the Senate gets its, you know, uh, voices its consent to ratification, uh, its role is over. Uh, again, obviously, if, it, if you need money, you can't have money with, under Article 1, Section 9 unless both houses appropriate money, uh, you know, if you need new authorizations of other things. But in general, I would argue that once Congress has authorized the use of force, its, its power to, to, uh, to, to undeclare war, if you will, is very unclear. I think what Congress did in May of 1973 uh, cutting off, uh, making it illegal to spend appropriated money on combat operations anywhere in Indochina was flagrantly unconstitutional. And interestingly, Ed Corwin, one of the top con law scholars in, in the country from Princeton, who was an opponent of the Vietnam War, agreed with that. So, uh, you know, the, all this talk about, you know, we're going to uh, undeclare, or, you know. Now, obviously, AUMFs, I would argue AMFs are not really part of uh, authorizing war under under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, but rather are a politically useful means of showing unity. And also, since the president is going to need money or authorization for new troops or whatever if the if the conflict extends, it's a very useful thing. But I'm not at all sure that AUMFs are constitutionally mandated. And certainly in this case, while we're acting defensively, uh, I don't think it's even seriously arguable that the president had to get a uh, uh, a declaration of war or formal authorization from Congress. Professor Vladek, anything on this point? Uh, I just say very briefly. I mean, I think that unfortunately for the caller, um, I think the uh, listener, sorry, I think that the the Title Ten issue is for the most part disjointed from the AUMF question because, if my memory serves, part of what the Title Ten um, uh, statutes include is whether the operation you've been deployed to is what's called a contingency operation um, under 10 U.S.C. Section 101A13. Um, the AUMF is relevant to DOD's determination of whether a particular operation is a contingency operation, but it's not conclusive. Um, and so even if we got to a point where the AUMF was actually wholly repealed, there would still have to be the separate step of DOD concluding that as a result, the particular contingency operation um, was concluded. And let me just say, frankly, you know, I think a plain repeal of the AUMF is actually the least likely outcome here um, after the continuing status quo and some kind of revision. So I'm afraid our listener may 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 not be going anywhere for a while. <laughs> I agree. I think we have time for one final question. Let's check in with another caller. Uh, I wanted to ask Professor Turner about a letter George Washington that in uh, 1793 that said, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war with Congress, therefore no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated on the subject and authorized such a measure. Does that uh, limit the powers of the president then um, without uh, the congressional authorization, would you say? No, actually, I, actually, I use that quote a lot in my own teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there are two elements there, offensive uh, and of importance, that is magnitude. 
And offensive, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the problem is the term offensive-defensive can be used, use ad bellum and use in bellow. It can be used, for example, when Douglas MacArthur, went, on, on behalf of the United Nations, went into Korea, he landed at Incheon, cutting the North Korean forces in half, uh, and it, but that did, that did not make the UN or the United States the aggressor. This was uh, the way you fight the war. Similarly, when Norm Schwarzkopf uh, did an end run and, and divided the Revolutionary Guard in uh, in, uh, in Kuwait, or sorry, yeah, in Kuwait uh, in 1991, uh, that did not turn the Americans into the aggressors. And so, what he when he said of, uh, offensive, he was talking. Usad uh, bellum, that is the law governing the initiation of hostilities, and that is we were not acting defensively. Uh, and uh, I've argued that declarations of war, there were two elements. One, it had to be aggressive or offensive, and, and, and in a Usad bellum uh, context, offensive means aggressive. And second, it had to be of, of, of you know a major operation. Now, it, actually, Washington was talking about a skirmish. With uh, I've forgotten which tribe, but with uh, Native Americans, not with a foreign power. But the principles are similar, and uh, and and I think Washington basically was correct. First of all, you don't declare war against not you know non-international persons. So so I don't think he was talking about uh, the the real power to declare war against states. But I think he was was, was sort of extrapolating that and say a major uh, expedition. That's not defensive. That's not responding to attacks or something like that. We're going in there to drive them out so we can have territory for our gold miners and and, and settlers and so forth. Uh, that required uh, approval. And it, you know, I, I think it was a very reasonable position. But 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 it's it's not exactly on point to uh, to to controversies with states. You know, actually, when you formally declare war. Uh, and again, I I think uh, you know. It, it, this is the primary power that Congress has in this area. Obviously, they control appropriations. The commander-in-chief power is a totally hollow power unless Congress first raises and supports armies, provides and maintains a navy, appropriates funds, and so forth. So Congress has tremendously important powers related to war and foreign affairs. But what I argue they don't have is the power to uh, uh, to prescribe the conduct of those wars, the the, the 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 precedents clearly. For example, the North Africa president says that once you're in a war, if the enemy moves into territory other than its own, the president can follow them. Now, if ISIS goes into Paris, we're not going to start bombing Paris without the consent of the French government. We have duties under international law to to other states, even if they're victims of aggression. But if you've got a case where somebody is using their territory to attack you, and they lacked either the will or the ability to stop it, you have a legal right to use necessary and proportional force to stop the uh, the attacks. And I think that's well established. That's also, by the way, one of the reasons we went into Cambodia, although, in fact, La Noel had authorized us to go in privately and, in fact, had gone to the U.N. and asked for all countries to help Cambodia eject the Vietnamese communists who had taken over a good part of his country along the South Vietnamese border. Uh, Professor Vladek? No, I think uh, I, I, it's hard to disagree with with Bob when he, when, when he shows off his, his Vietnam knowledge. Well, uh, we are out of questions, gentlemen. I think we're also out of time. So I think it's a good time to adjourn the call. I want to thank both our uh, guests today, Professors Robert Turner and Stephen Vladek. This was a, uh, a great debate, I would say. 
Uh, thank you both. Uh, thank you for your time and for your thoughts. I want to thank the audience as well for dialing in. A reminder to the audience about our next scheduled Teleform conference call. It is a special ethics CLE call we'll be holding tomorrow at the same number at noon. But until that next call, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Many thanks. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.